Welcome back to the Anglo Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 48 and is dominated by a failed attempt by the Boers at international diplomacy and continued zigzagging of General Christian de Vett across the Transvaal and then into the Free State. And finally, Lord Roberts setting out his stall to attack Louis Boerter in the Transvaal. So it was then, on the afternoon of Wednesday the 15th of August 1900, that a train pulled into Moscow Station in Russia. It was carrying Boer emissaries led by Willem Leitz, who had been crisscrossing the world trying to drum up support for the Boers in their battle against the British. We've heard in earlier podcasts how Leitz failed in both the USA and Holland despite sympathies and even citizens in both countries fighting for the Boers. However, the political situation was not in their favour. So Leitz and three other Boer emissaries, Fischer, Vessels and Volmorans, were on board the train in Moscow and looking out of their carriage. They were gratified to see hundreds of Russians cheering their arrival. But that was the only really warm welcome they received. It was quickly clear to these Boer emissaries that the Russian authorities regarded them as uninvited guests. Russian newspaper editors were ordered by the Tsar's officials to avoid writing stories about the Boers' arrival or even interviewing the men. At the same time, Leitz was informed that the Tsar was actually unavailable. He was apparently on a tour of his military bases and had been gone for weeks. The Boers said they'd wait. While public coverage was limited and the Russian formal welcome was lukewarm, Leitz did eventually manage to secure a meeting with the Tsar along with Russian Foreign Minister Count V.N. Lambsdorff. The meeting was accorded full diplomatic honours, though, without Fischer, Volmerans and Vessels. Count Lambsdorff made it clear that Leitz was the only real Boer diplomat and that the other three were not welcome. This was a bitter pill to swallow. The team had travelled the globe and now made the long trip to Moscow only to be told that Fischer, Volmerans and Vessels were personas non grata. In the meantime, the ever-resourceful Leitz printed 100 copies of the letter he'd received from the Russian government and had them distributed to media across the world. The letterhead itself was imposing with its large embossed eagle and the letterhead stamped St. Petersburg, August 18th, 1900. He was hoping the British would somehow be intimidated by such a note. They weren't, of course. A week later, Leitz was sitting opposite Count Lambsdorff and the Tsar, who had made it back from his grand tour. However, the meeting itself, which was held on the 25th of August, was frustrating. The Tsar had many questions for Leitz, most of which he could not answer successfully because of the previous failed diplomacy. First, Tsar Nicholas II asked Willem Leitz why the German Emperor Kaiser Wilhelm II had turned his back on the Transvaal Republic. None of my ambassadors has been able to shed light on it, replied Leitz diplomatically. Perhaps it was about the arms deals the Boers had signed. Presidents Kruger and Stein had purchased weapons from both the Germans and the French. This was a diplomatic bungle, as the Germans hated the French and vice versa. There was no neutral position possible in this matter, and as war became highly likely back in September and October 1899, the Boers had no choice but to accept arms shipments from both Berlin and Paris. When Leitz met the German Emperor earlier in August, the Kaiser had reprimanded the Boer emissary, saying, We are the gun manufacturers of the world. 
He didn't mention France by name, but the implication was clear. Leitz, however, couldn't admit this to the Tsar, as it would have been viewed as an amateur attempt at international diplomacy. So instead, Leitz suggested that Kaiser Wilhelm was, in his words, of volatile disposition. Leitz was using a smart tactic. The Tsar, you see, believed that Kaiser Wilhelm was unhinged, so describing the German as volatile was exactly what the Russian wanted to hear. However, the Tsar then told Leitz that if the Boers could get proof that Germany would not enter the war on the side of the British, he would reconsider Russian support for the Transvaal Republic. As Martin Bossenbrook, the author, writes in his book The Boer War, published in 2013, as usual, it was a case of one autocrat shifting responsibility onto another. Leitz, sitting opposite the Tsar, was nonplussed and appeared to blunder. He made a final appeal for Tsar Nicholas II to intervene directly in Brussels, where the Transvaal ambassador there was engaged in a diplomatic mission to drum up support. This angered the Tsar, who himself, of course, could be prone to his own volatile disposition, and he proceeded to stare down the Boers, saying, I would only be able to repeat to them what I have told you, and do you think it's pleasant for me, the emperor of all Russians, to say twice, I cannot? And that was the end of Boer diplomacy in Russia. The Anglo-Boer War was causing a great deal of friction inside Europe amongst the various kingdoms, republics and empires. For example, in early August 1900, the British had deported 1,400 Dutch citizens employed by the Netherlands South Africa Railway Company, including their families. This horrified the Dutch and caused great resentment. You need to go back to the future here. You see, in early August 1900, Leitz and the emissaries had travelled to Germany before Russia. The mission to Berlin was somewhat misguided. Upon arriving in Germany, the Kaiser had steadfastly refused to meet Leitz. In fact, the Germans had gone so far as failing to send any senior member of the government to engage with the Boers. The reason was simple. The Boers had of course purchased weapons from Germany's arch-enemy, France. This had caused the Boers grave diplomatic damage and Kaiser Wilhelm II was determined they should be belittled. While all of this was going on west of Pretoria, in the mountains of the Machalisberg, Boer General Christian de Wett was in a spot of real bother for once. After leading 20,000 British troops on a wild goose chase over the Vaal River, he'd eventually ended up encamped at the Crocodile River to the north. President Steyn had travelled with the vet all the way from the Basutoland border, hundreds of kilometres to the southeast, but now he wanted to leave de Wett's commando and join the Transvaal President Paul Kruger, who was holed up east of Pretoria at Waterfall Orna. The main problem was between the Crocodile River and the eastern Transvaal town was Lord Roberts's army of 26,000 men. They were protecting every known road and mountain pass, and de Wett knew that President Steyn would have to take a circuitous road far to the north of the capital if they had any chance of eluding these British units. But it was midwinter, and most waterways dried out at that time of year in South Africa, making it exceedingly difficult to travel by horse or wagon. Furthermore, the black population in many parts of the north were not friends of the Boers and had fought a number of small wars against the Burgers over the previous decades. Eventually, they resolved that President Steyn and a small force would head northeast across the Petersburg Railway and head to Machadadorp, while the vet created a diversion. 
So, on August the 14th, President Steyn headed off in his attempt at reaching his fellow president under the waterfall. Three days later, on the 17th of August, De Wett and 246 men, including Captain Skippers and his 30-strong scouting corps, decided they'd try to recross the Machalisberg Mountains, which basically took them south towards where the British were marching towards them. This was a typically out-of-the-box military move by the Boers' most successful military tactician. On August 18th, General de Wett and his tiny force arrived at a house where some Germans were living. They turned out to be the parents and sisters of Penzorn, the secretary to General Piet Coronier. They ate a hurried lunch, then continued on their way. Captain Skierpers and his scouts located a large British force on the main Rustenburg to Pretoria Road, and a second, around 12 kilometres away, on the open felt. De Wett writes, The enemy could see us clearly as it was open felt, with only a few bushes cropping up here and there. They rode out into the open, but the British failed to charge the small group. A short while later, Skierpers' men captured a British scout, who told him there was a large third force immediately in front of De Wett's men, he was now in dire straits and said, Thus, we found ourselves between four fires. Three of these were British divisions. The fourth was the Machalisberg mountain range. He was trapped. Worse, his horses were spent, whereas the British were replenishing their tired animals. So De Wett was aware, inevitably, he would be caught no matter how fast he tried to move. He needed an alternative solution and fast. The small commander had stopped in the shade of a copse of trees. While he considered his next move, scouts warned the British were advancing quickly towards them, and they were only four kilometres away. He was stuck between a mountain, the British, and the only two passes that could be traversed were being held by English soldiers. Was it all over for this enigmatic leader? Apparently not. Nearby was a small village where the black residents had kept out of the way of the wall. He asked the headman if there was a hidden pass across the Machalisberg Mountains looming over them. The man said no, but baboons were known to climb one specific part of the mountain and pointed it out. That was enough for De Wett, who turned and said to his men, Come on, this is our only way. Where a baboon can cross, we can cross. One of his men, a Corporal Adrian Matheson, wasn't so sure. He looked up at the mountains rising hundreds of feet above him and sighed loudly, saying, Oh, Red Sea! To which De Wett replied, The children of Israel had faith and went through, and all you need is faith. This is not the first Red Sea we have met, and it will not be the last. Corporal Matheson apparently said nothing, but De Wett writes how he pulled a long face, as if saying to himself, Neither you nor anybody else with us is a Moses. They set off up the hill, still riding their horses, and up the virtually sheer canyon side eventually, yet shielded from the advancing British by a thick bush. De Wett describes this as a pillar of cloud, to use the metaphor of the Red Sea still further. About halfway up the steep slope, the commander had to break cover. They were slipping and sliding, and most men were now leading their horses, desperately clinging to the side of the mountain. They were also in full view of the British below. And although out of reach of the Lee Metford rifles, they were not out of range of British artillery. Yet, no shot was fired. De Wett notes dryly that Corporal Matheson would have said they were more cautious than Pharaoh. Remarkably, they eventually reached the summit and were exhausted. De Wett says, I have ascended many a mountain, 
the rough hills of Majuba, the steep sides of Nicholson's Neck, but never before had I been so tired as I was now. But they were invigorated by the view and were able to take a good look at their next route from a high vantage point. They could see all the way to the Vidbatisrand Ridge across the undulating felt to the east, and more importantly, could see a gap southwards. They slipped and slid, descending the mountain, and after an hour and a half, arrived at a Boer farm. They were safe. They found horse fodder while the men ate, and for the first time in more than three days, they were able to rest overnight. The next day, they continued riding southwards, and by the 21st of August, Christian de Vett was back at the Vaal River having led the 20,000 British on a circular chase which had caused the Boers much loss of equipment, including artillery, but they were still moving. How delightful it was when the sun rose, writes de Vett, to see once more the well-known mountains to the south of the Val River in our own free state. On the way to the Val, he'd run into his second group of scouts, the international mercenaries under command of Dani Taron, who'd been riding with de Vett earlier in the month. This group had had a series of near misses and Taron's horses were too tired to continue for the moment and they were laid up at a place called Khatrant. Little did Devet know that this was the last time he'd see Donny Taron alive. The English had left the town of Potchestrum by this time and Devet and his commando rode back into the town on the night of the 21st of August 1900. A photographer was to snap one of the iconic pictures of the general that spread around the world, the thick-set General Christian de Vett on his horse. The photo, he writes, was taken of me, in which I am represented with a mauser in my hand. I only mention this so as to draw attention to the history of the weapon. You'd remember that the British seized thousands of mauzes and ammunition and burned them in a great pile near Potchefstroom a few weeks before. But as soon as the British garrison moved north, the burghers returned and scratched through this pile. They found many rifles were still usable, although all had their stocks burnt off. They then made new rifle butts, and de Vett was handed one of these mauzes before he was photographed. It was permanently burnt black, but perfectly operational, and the man who gave him the rifle said it was the 200th they had taken out of the burnt heap and had repaired. Meanwhile, the other Boer commando in the west, under command of General Kurs de had also decided to withdraw from Prakfontein, where they had been besieging Colonel Hoare and his 500 Australians. On the 16th of August, de la Rey took the decision to move out 11 days after the siege began and shortly afterwards British General Kitchener and his force relieved the colonials who had managed to hold off a force three times their size outside Rustenburg. While de Vett and de la Rey and their pursuers were thus engaged, to the east of Pretoria, Lord Roberts was preparing for what he believed was the final push against Louis Botha and his 5,000-strong army near Machadadorp and along the eastern escarpment. The tidings of war had also reached President Paul Kruger and his government, who were living on a train further east at the foothills of the escarpment at a place called Vardafal Honor. The capital of the Transvaal Republic had been reduced to a train carriage, sitting in the shadow of the huge buttresses that shore up the plateau of South Africa in this region. The area is breathtakingly beautiful, with sharp foothills and bush-covered ravines, where mountain streams race down jutting steep shelves of rock and cut through lush valleys. It was here that gold was actually first discovered in the Transvaal, before Johannesburg, 
and had led to the first gold rush of fortune hunters who had no idea that the mere trifle of the metal they found here would be overshadowed by the massive gold fields of the Witwatersrand. This eastern region had towns like Pilgrim's Rest and Devil's Knuckles, and these names indicate the twofold qualities of serenity and turbulence. It's a dramatic part of South Africa and a most apt stage for the next act in this epic tale. The cliffs here drop away up to 3,000 feet in places, taking a traveller from the high plains, which are largely clear of malaria and other diseases, to the lowlands where fevers wait. And President Kruger knew that Lord Roberts, who had been spending much time trying to deal with the vet in the West, would turn his attention here shortly. The Boers still had a great deal of equipment and material nearby, at Barberton and Leidenburg. They had entrenched themselves along the escarpment and had their dreaded Long Tom guns. However, the morale of the men was low. That needed to change if they were to take on the might of the British army once more. Lord Roberts had ordered the wheels to be set in motion and for his men to begin this offensive. And for once he had the full support of that stuffy and sometimes contradictory and pusillanimous General Redverse Buller, who commanded a division of 9,000 men. He had been fighting the Boers in Natal and had pushed them out into the Transvaal and had been chugging along slowly, driving them before him. It had taken General Buller eight days between his departure from near Standerton and around 160 kilometres before he joined up with Lord Roberts's army on the week of the 14th of August for this final push towards Louis Butter in the eastern Transvaal. But not without Buller's usual preparations. He gathered two weeks of supply of food for his men before they marched, and behind his force trailed 761 ox wagons full of tins of bully beef, biscuits, medicines, along with the usual ammunition, water and other important material. Lord Roberts was now aware that De Vett had headed off south of the Vaal and could fix his attention on General Louis Boerter and his large army of 5,000, which was a real threat to the British. For the climax of his campaign, he had 26,000 men already based at Belfast in eastern Transvaal. On the line was Paul Carew, and to his right, French leading the cavalry, and due south of French, the plodding and irascible General Buller, champagne bottles at hand. The attack was set to begin on the 21st of August. Well, that's for next week, where Buller unfortunately ignores Lord Roberts, and a series of deadly engagements were to take place around a place called Geluk, which means happiness. So until then, please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes and check out the website at abwarpodcast.com. Until then, goodbye. Die